Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. On September 21st, I moderated a panel discussion for the McCourt Institute at a pre-conference spotlight session on digital governance ahead of Unfinished Live, a conference on tech and society issues hosted at The Shed in New York City. The topic given to us by the organizers was Digital Governance and the State of Democracy, Why Does It Matter? Joining me for the discussion were Eric Brynjolfsson, a professor and senior fellow at the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered AI and director of the Stanford Digital Economy Lab, Maggie Little, director of the Ethics Lab at Georgetown University, Eli Pariser, co-director of New Public, an initiative focused on developing better digital public spaces, and Eric Salabir, the chair of the executive committee for the Human Technology Foundation, a research and action network placing the human being at the heart of technology development. What follows is a lightly edited recording of our discussion. I had the privilege of doing uh, this first panel and hopefully uh, kind of creating a little bit of the norms for the culture of what will happen on stage here today. I'm grateful to the uh, organizers for having me. Um, We're going to talk about some big issues. I'm going to go ahead and invite up my panel uh, to make their way onto the stage. Uh, We'll have uh, Eric Brynjolfsson, uh, Stanford Institute for Human-Centered AI and the Stanford uh, Digital Economy Lab. Eric, thank you very much. Um, Maggie Little. Uh, who I think will come next. Um, I think you're going to come all the way down here. Okay. Uh, Maggie, um, you're uh, director of the Ethics Lab at uh, Georgetown University. Thank you for joining us. Um, Eli Pariser, who uh, has worn many hats but is now co-director of New Public, which if you don't know, you should check out. Thank you. Uh, and uh, Father Eric uh, Salabier, who's uh, chair of the executive committee of something called the Human Technology Foundation, which he'll tell us more about. So, uh, Father Eric, thank you for joining Okay, so we have uh, the opportunity, uh, because we've been invited here uh, into this uh, beautiful space, to be a little bit subversive and maybe question uh, the premise for the panel and maybe even question uh, some of the premise for the agenda today, right? That'll be our job. Um, So, you know, we've had various ideas kind of put to us by the organizers. The data surveillance economy is fueling inequity, eroding trust, threatening democracies worldwide. How did we get here? How do we chart a better path forward? Why and how uh, should ground rules, safeguards, ethical standards be integrated into the tech development process? So, In 34 minutes. In (laughs) uh, 34 minutes, that's right. So we'll sort it all out. But uh, perhaps I'll I'll go around with each of you and give you an opportunity to sort of explain uh, your perspective when you were invited to this and you knew that was the premise. Uh, What did you think of that premise? And, you know, how do you sort of see this sort of inner connected set of problems. Well, Eric, I'll start with you. Well, well, thanks, Justin. Thanks so much for the kind introduction. And thank you to Frank and the whole team here. This is, uh, this is an amazing project that's underway here. I believe very sincerely that we're at a, at a fundamental turning point in history. As Frank mentioned, the technologies today are really changing the way our economy and our politics work. And we have a chance to, to reinvent what we're doing. Um, let, let me just put a little historical perspective on professor. So um, back in 1776, the steam engine was improved by James Watt. And that triggered, as we know, the Industrial Revolution. But also that same year, Adam Smith published The Wealth of Nations, 
laying out the blueprint for a new economic system. And of course, the United States was founded, a new political system. And, and today, we have, I think, equally important, maybe even more important technologies that are triggering a transformation, not in the way we work our muscles or that we work in the world of atoms, but the world of bits and, and our minds. And the implications, I think, are even more profound. And so I'm glad working with Frank and others to, to in the, inspired by the Federalist Papers, developing a new set of, of a blueprint based on, we're calling it the Digital Society Papers, to lay out some of the changes that are happening. And there's already been a, some amazing research um, on some of these topics that we're beginning to bring together. Let me just highlight two quick articles in science, I promise, uh, just for, for a minute or so. Um, uh, uh, about five years ago, there was a paper published in Science called The Spread of True and False News Online. And it was really scary because it showed what we all worried about, which is that, in fact, false information, misinformation spreads three times further, faster, and deeper online than it does in person. So it's not just the anecdotes, but they documented uh, uh, over 100,000 stories, some true, some false, and you could see that the false information spread faster. Now, this was not because the social networks had some evil plan, as far as I know, to spread misinformation. It's because they were inadvertently designed to trigger the parts of our brains, sort of the reptilian system one, as Danny Kahneman calls it, quick clicking, and that means you want to spread things that are amazing, things that you've never heard before, things that are unbelievable. Well, guess what? Lies are more unbelievable. So you get a lot of false information spread. And the platform itself is, in many ways, these platforms are destroying society, destroying democracy, because one of the most important things in a society is having truth privileged over misinformation. We've done the opposite, not by design. There's a more encouraging paper that was published uh, this past week, I was a co-author on it, so I'm proud of it. Uh, it was in the, also in the journal Science, and it described what we call the causal, the causal strength of weak ties. Um, we all connect to each other, um, increasingly socially. Thankfully, we're in person now. Um, and maybe the most important paper in sociology of the past century was Graneverter's paper called The Strength of Weak Ties. But it's all observational. Now we have data from millions of connections that people are making online. And what we found was that, indeed, um, not just the people who you're in your immediate friend circle are important, but the digital networks allow you to connect to people thousands of miles away, people in different industries, different companies you hadn't connected before, and millions of jobs were created um, that we could measure in this. So that's a much more hopeful use of the technology to connect people to each other, to people who hadn't known each other. And the takeaway I, t I have from those two pieces of research is not that technology is evil and it's going to destroy us or that technology is our savior and it's going to connect us, but it can be used in both ways. It depends fundamentally on how we design it. And as we get more and more powerful tools, I believe we have more powerful tools now than we've ever had in history, we have more power to change the course of history going forward. So I'm, I'm, I feel like this is one of the most important things happening on the planet right now is thinking about how we're going to use these new digital platforms to reshape the economy, to reshape democracy, and reshape the way we connect to each other. Maggie, to you, uh, you're running a center that's focused on ethics. Um, how do you come to the broad premise of this, this conversation? Well, you know, you asked at the start when I first saw the invitation what I thought. And I'm, gonna be, I'm being honest here. It's not because Frank is in the audience. Hi, Frank. But literally, I thought, thank God, finally, because the, today is a day on governance, different models of governance, including regulation that government isn't always bad, it has a role, it has an irreducible role. So when I think of ethics in this space, 
we, we agree, I think everybody in this room, that when tech goes awry, when power is over-centralized or the business models behind it are, are corrosive, right, that can be incredibly damaging to democracy. Um, but the question is, oh, right, the Hamilton line, right? Revolution is easy, governing is harder. So that's why I got excited about today. We, new technology does require new forms of governance. But I do worry sometimes in the Web3 discussions, to which this stands as an exception, right, that uh, um, tech is uh, sort of decentralized tech is sort of equated with democracy, and that all the structures needed to ensure democratic values and democratic um, resilience are, could be found in the code, as it were. And technology is great, but it's always technology used by humans. And so the tech needs to be designed by, with, in light of and regulated in light of actual humans and actual societies and the, histor the historical precedents we have um, experiences of. So um, one of the things that uh, I find most important is just to keep the reminder going mm. that while the current problem is well diagnosed as one of over-centralization, no question, in my mind. That's not the same as saying, at every moment and every decision point, full decentralization is the answer, right? There are a lot of ways to blow up the world, right? No, no structures other than letting people have full user choice and maximizing uh, liberty uh, themselves, as important as that is, will ensure uh, that we don't end up in the Wild West again. Right? So um, ethically speaking, I would say, meaningfully expanding and redistributing meaningful power also includes the need for human-formed governance, even with the advantages of the tech in mind. Eli, I think of you as in the business of plan B, of trying to create alternatives uh, at this point. How do you come to this question? Well, um, I mean, first I just think we should, as Maggie was, like grounded in what, what, is, what does governance matter, right? And it, it matters because it's about power, it's about who gets to speak, it's about who, which people matter, and what power we have together, right? And I think there's lots of conversations happening right now about uh, sort of democracy under threat, and I think that was somewhere in the tagline. But I think like the, the biggest threat to democracy is its own total incompleteness. Like we've never actually figured this thing out in a way that gives dignity and power and freedom to everyone in a society, especially in a multicultural society. Never happened. No state on earth has ever done that. So there's this real project of, of continued invention that has to happen. Um, and that's before you get to the fact that we're governing with like 1700s <laughs> technology, right? And so we're trying to invent something new with technology that's several centuries old in terms of how communication norms are expected. And so my, my feeling, and, and people here may disagree, is that when I imagine, and I, I, I am a hopeful person, and I have faith that we're going to get there, but when I imagine the multi-racial, multi pluralistic democracy that's going to exist in 2050, I can't see how we get there by little incremental tweaks, right? Like, I think we need to be thinking much bigger about what kinds of power-holding structures we need. And so for, and I think that's a, that's a generational movement and it's a really broad movement and it's so exciting. I mean, for me, being in this for 20 years, like 
right now it's starting to feel like people are actually up to the scale of that movement, to the, to the ambition of that movement. That's starting to actually sort of feel like it's a thing that's happening all around the world. And so I'm very grateful to, to everyone who's here who's like part of really feeling like, okay, we gotta do something much bigger. And uh, so New Public, it, you know, we're really trying to tackle this one piece of it, which is uh, democracies have always needed public spaces. Public spaces have always been key to how we've built cohesion, understanding across difference, it's weak ties. Yep. And we know what that looks like in the 20th century. It looks like parks, it looks like libraries. But as we move into a world that's mediated by digital experiences, what does it mean to have public experiences? What does it mean to have public life and public space? And that's what we're trying to, that's our contribution to that broader movement. I guess the, the last thing that I'll say is, uh, to start, you know, I think there's a natural tendency to, you know, can we really, can we really build something different, something new? And I just wanna turn that around and say like, like I find it offensive for people to say that our current systems of governance are the best that humans can do. Like it's not okay. We can do better than this. We have to do better than this if we actually care about the dignity of, of human lives. And let's not be satisfied with what we've got. Like let's, let's keep going. Um, and I think the people who, you know, who, are, who are pushing autocracy forward want us to doubt and want us to fear and want us to think it's impossible and what I want us to do is to hold on to a kind of pragmatic hope that it is possible and figure out how we get there. Father Eric, uh, you may have the broadest time horizon on these questions of anyone on the stage, if I'm correct. Uh, not, not so sure. First of all, uh, uh, thank you very much for having me um, here. Um, uh, good afternoon, everybody. So uh, actually, at least I have a perspective from Europe, which is perhaps slightly different. But I would like to, to jump on what you said, Eli, uh, because um, a couple of days ago, it was revealed that a big country of Eastern Europe, uh, I will not mention the name, I would say, has uh, spent uh, millions and millions just to, uh, 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 let's say, have a strong impact on our democracies and transform them and probably uh, 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 be harmful to them. And my question was, how, why are we so uh, sensitive to those fake news? And so part of the answers were given by, by uh, Eric, and, and, and that was very relevant. But I, I would say that for sure we have the biases. For sure those technologies are very well designed by smart people, implemented by strong companies, and so on. But for me, that's not all of the answer. I mean, the point is, if you trust someone, and if uh, someone else comes and says bad things about the people you trust, you will not uh, change your mind in a snap saying, oh, for sure, that's true. But why people trust all those conspiracy theories? I mean, they are not dummies. And I was recently at the headquarters of Orange uh, in France, and, and uh, some people were saying that uh, uh, prominent politicians from all around Europe come and say, what's the connection between 5G and COVID? Mm. My gosh, just even asking the question is strange. And so I would say that probably it means that we have no strong narrative, common narrative, to oppose to those little stories. And I think that probably if our democracy is endangered, it's also because at some point it's weak. And, and we need to identify the weaknesses of the democracy to, to fix them. And, and, and just in Europe, something interesting is uh, uh, a lot of politicians were elected because they were anti-system. So they were elected to govern the system being anti-system. It's a bit strange, but uh, for me, the most important point is the way they phrase it. Uh, democracy is seen as a system. It's not seen as a common project anymore. 
it seems like an, an operating system. I don't want to be managed by an operating system. I understand that people feel out of the loop. And so how do we change that? And for me, that, that's the point. And, and probably we need to fix the symptoms, like the fake news, hate speech, and so on. But we also need to try to step back and, and see what's the real disease, this kind of democracy fatigue. And how do we cure that? And for me, for, we, we've seen that, unfortunately, dark democracy is a dream, so it doesn't work like that. But a lot of things can be done, and I agree with you, Technology has to be part of the solution. It is part of the solution. But uh, how uh, do we, for example, use civic tech to involve the people uh, in the society in, the, in, in building a common project? And actually, that's what we work on in our Human Technology Foundation, uh, working on inclusiveness, how technology can be part of the inclusion, uh, working on, uh, um, let's say, the impact of the big companies and so on. And so I would say, yeah, I think for me, that has to be part of the conversation. Please, Maggie. Can I just add on to what you said? I love yeah. that you brought in the issue of inclusion of the people that would be using or who, whom the tech serves. Yeah. So if we're going to live up to Eli's dream, I love your dream. It's, it's <laughs> going to be a reality. Me it's going to be real. But one of the pathways has to include inclusion of the people who are part of the democracy. So one of the, um, I mean, diagnosing the, the problems that led us here, one of the big issues with tech is not just that it's big tech and over-consolidated, but insular from stakeholders, right, the people who are going to be most affected. So part of, I think, your ideal and vision and what you're working on um, is what are models for, um, some people call it design justice, designing anything, um, including a city, a government, or a tech platform. How do you make it inclusive in a radical way might be how you get a radical solution on democracy. Yeah, for me, this is key. But unfortunately, I'm afraid that too often uh, policymakers see uh, uh, inclusion in the tech, like uh, how to make it more accessible and mm -hmm. so on. But for me, this is only the first step. It's inclusion through technology. So how can we help people through technology to be more involved in the society? So it means that it has to empower the people and all of that very often, we have the feeling that once they have 5G, a decent computer or phone, and a little bit of literacy on that, that's fine. But that's absolutely wrong. Mm -hmm. And it has to be designed to develop this democracy and to involve more the people. And actually, we work with the French presidency on something called Tech for Good. So this is an initiative uh, partly on inclusiveness. And actually, it was one of our uh, goals, like to design like uh, uh, digital inclusiveness goals, the, j just to be sure that technologies will follow a specific path, and so they will be more inclusive. Yeah. Eric. Yeah, and I think we'd want to be more inclusive, but also think we want to do what we can to amplify and harness the, the better natures in each of us. It could, we could be inclusive in a way that leads to, to mob rule and destruction and polarization and brings out the worst lies I talked about being spread faster, or we can try to bring out the better angels. Uh, a couple of months ago, uh, uh, Alan and I had, had uh, dinner with Steve Pinker and he's talking about his new book and, and trying to promote rationality. And he's a whole like checklist of ways that people can be more constructive. But uh, what I thought was the most interesting part of our conversation was he talked about the institutions that we've created over the past few centuries that are designed to amplify truth versus falsehood. You know, the, the, you know, the journal system of refereeing, the adversarial court system, um, good journalistic ethics, and some of the other things that are in place to try to 
on the margin make it more likely that imperfect people will lead to better outcomes. As, as I was saying at the outset, unfortunately, I think many of our technologies and our institutions have been inadvertently designed to amplify some of the worst instincts. And machine learning is really good at learning from clicks and quick information. It's not very good at learning from what people really care about over weeks or months or decades or lifetimes. It, it really can't. So we've built a system that, not by design, but by effect, um, amplifies some of that, that you know, more primitive parts of our brains. And unfortunately, that's not the part that created the civilization we want. So we need to reinvent. And in my conversations with Frank, one of the things that I found most inspiring was not necessarily just that, you know, as Maggie's saying, what, what are the parts of Web3 that you know, amplify democracy or not? Maybe some do, some don't. You, know, mm -hmm. you can do some things. But, but more fundamentally, the more general thing is that it's a reset button. We're in a, in a position where new technology is allowing us to, to just create new institutions. And now we have a chance to be a little more conscious about how we go about doing those. And I think that's a big part of the agenda here. If I can just build on that, uh, you know, I think with, with any institution, it's worth considering, like, how does this institution invite people to think about power? And what I think we live in currently is a uh, essentially autocratic digital environment. Yes, you can participate. You can post a tweet. But if you want to change how Twitter works, you need to have $50 billion or have a company, the company, you know, and, and, and it's one person. You know, at the end of the, it's like there's like five guys who make all the decisions ultimately about how these systems work. And um, so, so I really believe democracy isn't, it's not just a formal system of rules and, and regulations, it's a cultural system. And a lot of how people build faith in democracy historically, if you talk to sociologists and political scientists, isn't through, because they voted and their candidate won, it's through trade unions or it's through membership associations or other pretty informal ways that they came to believe that coming together with other people who are different from them created some collective power. And so those are the kinds of institutions I think you need in order to create a democratic culture in order to sustain a formal democratic yep. system. And we just, we have the farthest thing from that in our digital environment right now. And so I think there really is this question, it's like the, the, the design justice question mm -hmm. is a fundamental question mm -hmm. because if people don't actually feel like they are meaningfully powerful over their environment, then they mm -hmm. start to shrink back or look for someone powerful enough to punch through like Elon. So you mentioned 2050, this sort of aperture of uh, mid-century. How do we get there, right? Uh, we're going to have climate change uh, bearing down on us in even more extreme ways, uh, these autocracies that uh, are, are presently putting pressure uh, and, and attacking us both uh, you know, physically and, and, and perhaps uh, in clandestine ways. Uh, we'll, we'll continue to do their thing. Uh, lots more pressures, lots more conflict. COVID uh, variant 68 or something like that, I'm sure. Um, it, it's a rough patch ahead. I think we'd all perhaps agree. Um, if we are to get to a point where this multiracial uh, democracy is, uh, you know, at least uh, still possible or intact or, or somehow has been realized, we've got to the point where we're thinking more about equity, et cetera, 
what does this group of people have to do starting now? This is a select group, right, from the conference. They're uh, individuals who are all uh, leaders in their own right, who are doing things uh, to, to address these issues. What would you say to them? What do they need to go out and do now? Well, you listed a, a litany of real problems, really challenging things. And I think it's very important to, to think about those. But in my career, what I ask my students to do is think about what could go right. <laughs> and so by 2050, I like that. That's a good you know, goal there. You know, what were the things that went right? This is a Reed Hoffman likes to ask this question as well. And I, I think actually, uh, as, as several of us on this panel have said, uh, I'm also an optimist. And, and I, but I'm a, I'm a mindful optimist. I think that if we do the, the right things, we can have um, unprecedented flourishing. We can have uh, empowering people to an extent that they never could have before. Um, and we can have a, a level of wealth and abundance that really takes off the table a lot of the problems. That, you know, th there's a lot of things because of AI and other technologies that we can, we can basically wipe out poverty and a lot of the other problems. We can address some of the environmental problems with much more success than we have in the past. The, the more wealth and technology we have, the easier it is to address climate change and the other things. So, these, so what we need to do is think about how we can use the technology to amplify humans, not to replace humans, uh, not to uh, uh, take humans out of the loop and concentrate all the power, which is a lot of how the technology is being used in business, and it's a lot of how it's being used in politics today, but rather have a, a synergy of humans and machines working together on, in both of those fronts. And I think that that's a, that's a design choice. Uh, I'm very much not a, a technical, technological determinist that thinks that there's just this one inevitable future. The history has shown over and over that there are um, uh, forks and, and crossroads where you can make choices. And so probably the main thing is just to understand that we have those choices and that if we want to have technology that fulfills the kinds of values that my fellow panelists have been describing, um, we need to be conscious about that. Maggie? Okay, I'm going to respectfully push back a little Absolutely. bit. Absolutely. Um, because we've done a lot of dreaming and 2015 and uh, what's possible, um, which I completely sign on for. Um, I, I also like, I'm going to say what I agree with before I say what I do. So I also love the idea of alternative futures and your prompt up to your students of what, you know, imagine a better future and then ask what went right. I like that prompt so much because it backwards us into, we have to, we have to figure out how to get to that. So, I, I, so the part I am pushing back a little on is, um, I think utopian-based reasoning is incredibly dangerous. I think humans for 10,000 years have thought, here's the utopia, so how do I get there? And I don't know pathways to go from uh, a reality to a utopia, number one, that doesn't just break everything. And second, we don't have a good track record as humans with utopias being sustainable. And I don't see technology changing that because you're still dealing with humans, to go back to what I said on the... So, so yes to um, speculative ideation, fantastic. It's always good to take a pause and think of utopias and agency. It's possible to do radically better. But then returning to how would we go from here to there without breaking everything, number one. Second, with including, right, that was one of the things. So it can't just be we think of the revolution and make it happen. Um, and the third, I'm remembering, right, the, the panels to come afterwards, you know, we've also got lots of regulators in the, in the room, and I love regulators. My husband's a regulator, right? So we actually have an army of people who have high expertise, lots of experience in how actually to get stuff done. 
And I don't want to forget that army of people who we need to empower and ask them. Uh, so I really like incremental change too. I, without incremental change, we're, we're, I'm sorry, we're just streaming, and I know that's not what you meant. But so I'm soup. Part of why I love the idea of today is we're also going to get really practical mm -hmm. while being supercharged about making it massively better. Yay. And things have been depressing lately, so dreaming a little is fantastic. But there's so many good concrete things if we empower pe what people have already thought for making, making forward motion. So um, there's a lot. I, I think the caution against uh, especially like thin, speculative utopias as a North Star to build toward exclusively for everyone, I'm, I'm with you. Um, and I actually, I don't think there is a solution, like, or, or even like a couple solutions mm -hmm. to a bunch of these problems. Like, I, I really, I've been thinking about, I think uh, it's Eleanor Ostrom, um, who's an economist who studied commons, uh, commons management, um, you know, has a thing about like no panaceas. And what she meant by that is like, there's no, there's no like magical solution that comes down that works for everyone. And, and, and the more you're talking about human communities, the more that's true. And when you look at institutions that are successful, they are situated, they're in a particular place mm -hmm. with a real understanding of who they serve. They're not trying to serve everyone. So part of what I have, so, so I think, you know, in terms of the path to, to the better place, um, uh, you know, I think one piece is about breaking it apart and saying like, you can't solve these problems as one algorithm that we're gonna tweak to try to make it work for three billion people. There will never be an algorithm that works for three billion people, really. Like that's, protocol or uh, AI system yeah. or anything, yeah. Like, and, and so let's like think about this differently. And then let's do a lot of experimentation and a lot of learning to see, you know, it's like the Gibson quote, it's like the, the future's here, but it's not evenly distributed yet. Like mm -hmm. there are places where there are things that are working and you could talk about Taiwan or Estonia or Iceland, Barcelona. There's a whole bunch of really interesting stuff that's bubbling up that it is pragmatic, but is also much more of a, of a step forward than, you know, tweaking our vote by mail guidelines by X percent. And so, you know, I think that's where I would circle and then the last thing I'll say is like, it, you know, this, this pragmatic hope thing is, is tricky. And on the one hand, like totally yes, pragmatic. But on the other hand, like, I just want us to remember that what everyone, what they want is for us to be like, eh, it's too hard, you know? And so I think it's that like, the, the hope not in the sense of like, uh, you know, I know my dream's gonna come too, but as a habit of mind that is determined and gonna, gonna keep pushing. Yeah, actually, I would say that I hope that we can make our dreams true, uh, come true. Uh, and in a very pragmatic way, I would say that uh, it has to be by uh, redesigning some uh, tools, some protocols, some patterns. J just to give you an example, we worked with the European Commission on the data sharing. So when companies share data, they do that very efficiently for money. And as you say, it's very centralized, and probably nobody has anything to say about the way they deal with our data. 
Um, on the other side, uh, the open data is completely open, free, and so on. But we see that it's pretty limited because the data is not high quality, and mm -hmm. some things can be done with that, but not everything. And so the, the European Commission was trying to find a third way in between. And they, I mean, it was a kind of a dream. It, it, they called that data altruism, so sharing data for the common good. But it was just not like a big declaration, oh, we sure, a, a little bit like Teletubbies, we, sh we should share our data and whatever. No, it was like, practically speaking, how can we do that? Uh, sh should we have like third parties managing our data? Should we have a way to finance it? Should we have protocols? Should, should we have a regulation and so on? So just to be pragmatic and forge, create a new way to share data. Now we don't know if people will really buy it, if we, people will really we, we use it. And actually we're working uh, um, with them on the governance and on the acceptability of this process. But this is the kind of experience that, that, can, that should be replicated in, in many ways, just because if we build these kind of tools, we can twist the system, we can change things. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, since panels are more fun when we have a little friendly disagreement, I'm going to pick up yeah, on, yeah. on the incremental <laughs> versus, versus the, the radical. I'll, I'll take the side of, of more radical. And, and that's Wait, can I, I said utopian is what we're and, and Okay, I'll okay. take the side of utopian then, too. You, mm -hmm. um, so, <laughs> I mean, utopian, of course, you know, it means no place is literally what it means. So that's maybe a little extreme. But actually, it was one of my favorite books when I was a kid because mm -hmm. I, I was inspired by the idea that we could build a better society. And, and like everything in this room, somebody imagined that monitor and that you know, camera, these these buildings, and then they built it, and it got created. Our country was imagined by a group of people, and they got together. It has a ton of flaws, but they created something very new that hadn't existed before. Um, that I think was pretty radical for for its time. Um, you know, Facebook and Twitter and uh, Move On and lots of organizations. Somebody said, "Hey, let's create this." And that's how, that's how we have all this amazing stuff. That's why we're 50 times richer today than we were in the 1700s, is because people consciously said, we can build something that never existed before. Right now, we have the most amazing tools ever. I've moved out from MIT to, to Silicon Valley at Stanford, and every day I'm running into people who give me these utopian ideas. One of my friends is building flying cars, and another one you know, is building implantable chips. And, and like when you hear them, you're like, if, you were, if I hadn't been in Silicon Valley, I'd be like, that's a crazy utopian idea. But then I look at their track record, and they've done stuff like that before. So a lot of these crazy ideas fail, but some of them succeed. And I think we are right now at a point where we, we do have these more powerful tools than ever before. And so I would distinguish two kinds of optimism. There's a kind of unconditional optimism that, you, that I might have as, as a child that, you know, Christmas is going to come and presents are going to arrive. And I'm just like, I just can't wait till that happens. I'm just going to sit here and wait and good stuff's going to happen. That's a really bad, destructive kind of optimism. I don't think, I think that's as, as bad. As an adult, as, it was good as a kid. Okay, no? As an adult. Okay. As a, okay, it may be okay for kids. But, but yeah, um, there's another kind, I call it mindful optimism, which I, word I used a little bit before, which is like, uh, I want a treehouse, and I'm going to build that treehouse, and here's my idea for it. And, you know, it has to be realistic, but it may be something that didn't exist before, and it may be the best one in the neighborhood, or the, you know. And that is something that if you put your effort into it, you can create. And so I, I would call for, for mindful optimism on this panel and in our society. Uh, we have a lot better tools than the kids building uh, treehouses did, and I think we have a chance to, to radically remake the way we're, we're governed and the way our economy runs. Can I? 
Yes, please. And we've got gonna, two minutes. Yes, I, I know. Just I just want to warn the audience before, no. Maggie, you go. We are going to open it up to some questions, yeah, I one believe. Minute 45. For those of you who've joined us online, we'll also have a, some mechanism for you to ask as well. But Maggie. So I love everything that you just said. So I just want to clarify what I find dangerous, form of reasoning, which is not what you said. Of Radical, yay. Innovation, yay. Creative, right? Of thinking of ideas and realizing them that have never been thought for, yay. The utopian reasoning, I mean something very specific that mm -hmm. sometimes mm -hmm. burbles up with Web3. We can have a society where there is no wealth disparity and everything, right? That's to imagine an end state mm. that has no problems and yet is still populated by humans. That's what I find dangerous, okay? As opposed to- And we hear those things from people like Sam Altman. No, and absolutely, and, and that just, uh, I can go on too long about it, but that seems very dangerous to me. I don't think it's what the panelists here are talking about. I do want to caution against it, because again, sometimes in Web3, it's we can have it all, and since we don't have it all now, everything is broken. That's not how it works, but love the idea of uh, mindful hope and radical solutions. Great. Uh, that gives us, oh, go ahead, Eli. You've got just 36 one, just, seconds before we're meant to turn yeah. it over to the audience. Well, it's just, I think the other piece is like, who's, who's invited to imagine this yes. stuff? And mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. And what does it mean that we live in a society where, you know, billionaires can imagine whatever they want, and everyone's kind of like, okay, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but Jackson but, doesn't have water. But right. Jackson doesn't have water, and is not allowed to imagine a different way of doing okay. water or a different way of doing, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, I think that's part of like the muscle we need to build is a much more like participatory and people-driven imagination about what it is that we want rather than having it sort of trickle down from, from I know we're out of time, people. but let me just jump in. I mean, one of the things that gives me the most hope and optimism is Rod Shady wrote this paper about the lost Einsteins, and yep. that there's a very small slice of people in our society that have the opportunity to invent and create new things. I feel like I can be near some of those people, um, which is great. Um, but one of the things that's changing is not that just that we've connected a billion people seven billion people to access information, but more and more of them are able to contribute in a way. And one of the biggest parts of our agenda should be to widen that funnel, ultimately, hopefully to almost everybody, who to be able to contribute. That's gonna make us all wealthier, the more people we have being the, the future Einstein. So that, that would be a, a top of the agenda of how we reinvent our society is, is to address the, the challenge that, that uh, Eli just brought up. I'll get my mic runners ready, but Father, Father Eric. Yeah, j j just one second to, to, to follow up in, in this direction. I would say that for me, the, the point is just also to be sure that the citizens have the mindset that they are really citizens. Because, uh, in, I mean, we have in, in Europe, in some countries, the, this dream of uh, state as a platform. But if state is a platform, the, the, customer, the citizen is a customer. Mm. And very often we have people who behave as customers in their own society. Mm. And this is not the way you can change the society. The only way to change is to be an active customer. It doesn't mean to be an activist, but to be part of the reflection. To, I mean, for me, technology is not about technology. Technology is about politics. And so people have to jump in. That's, and, and this is clearly a, 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 a kind of a mindset, shift of mindset, yeah. Let's go to a question in the audience. I've got the first hand up right here in the center. So if my mic runner might want to even come around. Hello. Um, hi. Um, I have a question um, that I think stems first from 
when Frank mentioned that this is the time for governance and the time to really do something really big. And then Maggie, you said something that still just keeps playing in my mind, which is oftentimes technology is equated with democracy, or at least now decentralized is equated mm -hmm. with democracy being that tech will ensure goodness, mm -hmm. for example. Um, and so, you know, we also talked about how there are these dreams of big, big things, and we have to dream a ut utopia world. Um, but getting to that utopia, you know, there's multiple versions of social media before we have the versions we have now, right? And there's multiple versions of all these things. So in all of your experiences, first with Maggie, whether it's teaching or working with different people, what do you think on those incremental ways a builder in tech or someone who's a policymaker right now, someone who's doing enforcement within the next few months, the next year or so, not 2050, like getting to 2050, what is it that we can do right now, recognizing even the power dynamics in the room, right? There are people who will yeah. never be at unfinished that are deeply impacted by this. What do they do? Um, and so what are your thoughts for all the various groups of people and what can we do now? So some, somewhat a version of the question I was putting to you, which is what can this group of people here who all have some leverage in the world do? No, not just us though. Like people not just who us aren't here, beyond, we're quite privileged. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so long list. But first of all, people building community so that the people who are doing the imagining are more inclusive for sure, and funding them. Right? It's not just who gets to talk; it's who gets to do and build. Second, figuring out the regulations that are needed now and figuring out political pathways, right, for how to enact those. So even things down to state and local levels are the people who set a lot of the actual regulations on tech and data. Vote for those people who are going to do it right. Um, third, uh, work on uh, tech companies' willingness to partner with people who care deeply about the ethics but are happy to get in the weeds on the technical and help sort of pathfind, yeah, like, mm -hmm. Um, bushwhack, right? The path is not figured out. The ethics mm -hmm. here that are needed can't lever out over the systems and norms that are already in existence. So you have to have partners to build the stuff. But um, uh, th those are things that um, uh, citizen community, uh, regulator voters. So I, I actually do think that making voter access easier is massively important. Okay. And then tech companies finding um, folks who are interested in helping to help develop capacity on an ethical mindset while keeping a mind to the bottom line. It sounds like Maggie's telling us to organize, organize, organize. Is that right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, I, we've got time for maybe one more question because this thing's counting down. Um, I, I saw your, your hand first there, so maybe I'll come back to the fir first row here again. Hello, Gene Seidman. Thank you. Great panel. Uh, Antonio Gutierrez from the UN gave the humanity a pretty bad report card yesterday. And you were talking about the spreading of false news or lies mm -hmm. three times faster. Right. And I'm wondering about uh, education for people believing false lies, you know, false news, bad news versus the truth that we might think. Mm -hmm. And places like Cambridge Analytica that are still, no doubt, working you know, uh, in deceptively and, and evil ways. So how, does edu how do we deal with people who think they're believing the truth and it's not? And yeah. thoughts on that? I'm so glad you asked that question. I think it's, it's one of the existential challenges to our society right now is dealing with this. Uh, the, the, 
the, the success of a civilization depends very much on privileging truth over lies, and, and we've been doing the opposite lately. And there's a set of categories of things that we need to look at. Uh, one is, is at the individual level, education. And just, um, you can teach people to look out for misinformation. I learned this new term a while back from uh, Jared Cohen, nut picking. And now I see it everywhere. Nut picking is finding an idiot on the other side, some extremist, and making them famous. Somebody who would have been ranting to 12 other people at most suddenly becomes famous to 3 million or 300 million people. And then that becomes the, you know, the, 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 the symbol of the other side. And, and it generates all sorts of anger. So that's a, that's a tool that now, I, now that I understand it, I see it and I try to avoid it. Um, but there are a lot of individual things, just you know, basic education in civics and, and how you, you know, the scientific method and how you distinguish truth and, and, and ethics too. I think it, it may make a difference. Um, the, but the other thing which I was touching on was um, institution and organizational changes. And this is something that I think we know some of the techniques that, that work, um, but I think that it's a, it's a research agenda is to systematically look at what are, the, what are the levers. There's a whole bunch of open platforms out there from Wikipedia, Twitter, you know, uh, Reddit, and, 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 and et cetera. If you look at them, some of them have a lot more misinformation than others. And they have dozens of design parameters. I was talking to Jimmy Wales about this. And, and some of them are anonymous. Some of them have different revenue models. Some of them you can treat very, repeat things very quickly. Some you can't. I have hypotheses, but I'm trying to be a scientist about it. We want to look at that systematically and say, which ones are correlated with more truth? Which ones are correlated with more falsehoods? And how can we, over time, design systems and organizations to do it? I think most of the people who run these organizations and, and these systems, whether they're individual billionaires or, or, or boards of directors, I know some of the people on the board, um, you know, they want to do, they will want to do the right thing. Maybe there are some revenue model incentives that push them in the wrong way. Maybe there are some technology design incentives that push them in the wrong way. Uh, I think a, a, an important agenda would be to understand that better and then start implementing it. Just as, as you know, the, the Federalist Papers laid out a set of principles that, you know, imperfectly moved us towards more, more democracy. Um, we can do the same thing going forward, but, but I'm glad you asked that question. Father Eric, we were out of time, but uh, 10, 15 seconds. Uh, just 10 word. seconds about the two questions, perhaps. Uh, I think that uh, uh, each time there's a kind of riot or social movement or whatever, we allow people to complain, so to identify the problems, but not to be part of the design of the solution. And I think we should trust more the collective uh, smartness. I mean, pe people can do a lot being connected, working together, and I think that technology can allow us to build the solution together, and we've seen that each time we try that, so each time we trust people, we get a good surprise. Trust people. Um, maybe yeah. a nice word from, uh, from, from, from the man in the cloth on the stage to end us. I thank the audience. I thank you for your smart questions, and thank you to the organizers again. I'm sorry we took a couple of extra minutes. Thanks to the panel. Thank you. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to the McCourt Institute. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.